What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another edition of The Conversation. La Conversacion with me, Francesca Fiorentini. Who am I? That's not important. Follow me on Twitter, though, for real. Uh, no, uh, I am your stand-in host. We always have excellent discussions on this show called The Conversation, which is weird. Um, and I'm so excited to present our first guest. Uh, she is running for Senate in Colorado. Her name is Lorena Rodri uh, Garcia. Lorena Garcia, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, so okay, you are running for Cory Gardner's seat. And Cory Gardner is a little vulnerable. He's the incumbent, he's a Republican. And I know that for you, watching him confirm a one Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court was a very galvanizing moment and had a little bit to do with why you ran in the first place. So tell us about that. Yeah, you know, he has a history of confirming really outrageous characters to head up the the departments of our of our nation and I mean from Betsy DeVos to Ben Carson, Ryan Zinke, I mean Pruitt, let's we can go on forever. But really what it came down to was when he confirmed Brett Kavanaugh after 16 women from Colorado flew all the way to sit in his desk mm -hmm. and have the conversation with him about why he should not be there. So right, that was such a powerful um, act of heroism to go all the way to DC Talk to Cory Gardner specifically, and and did he receive these women? No, he didn't. He heard them, didn't say a word, stood up and walked out of the room. And when I heard this, I mean, hearing this story after I had agreed to run for office was even just more of a cementing of this is what I'm doing because, you know, it's it's about time that we have somebody at that level who is really going to be listening to the constituency and who's going to be taking their stories into consideration. And he doesn't do that. He doesn't give a crap about people in Colorado. Yeah, uh, no, if you uh, ignore 16 sexual assault survivors and refuse to meet with them, I think that is equivalent to not giving a crap. Um, but you have, you're running and you have a tough primary. I know there are two other Democrats right now in the race, John Hickenlooper, of course, who was running for president um, initially in the however many um, <laughs> candidate uh, candidates yeah. there were in that moment. What? Tell me about John Hickenlooper. He's been governor there in Colorado for how many years? How many years has it been? Well, it's his term ended in 2018. Right. Um, what's his legacy been? What was what? what? What's his legacy been in Colorado? Oh my gosh, they don't call him Frackenlooper for nothing in this state. <laughs> I mean, he would sue communities that would make their own decisions to ban fracking from entering their communities. Wow. And here he goes, he just says, you know what? I don't care because I care more about oil and gas and I care about your health and safety. So I'm going to sue you for passing ballot initiatives to ban fracking in your communities. So right. he's, you know, he's a corporate dem to the max and he doesn't even want this job. He yes. doesn't want it. Yes, yeah, yeah. And I think Lorena was referring to that Hickenlooper was sort of poo-pooing the idea of running for Senate and was really against it. And then Schumer made a very special trip out to convince Hickenlooper to run. What, what's your response to that? Uh, that someone like Chuck Schumer, um, you know, would tap somebody like Hickenlooper? I'm not surprised. I mean, imagine if we actually get a real progressive in the Senate. I mean, Schumer doesn't want that. He's also a status quo corporate dem. He all he wants to do is maintain control, and he's afraid of what progress actually looks like. So I'm not surprised that he's going to go to the most 
moderate, well, in fact, the most conservative Democrat who actually should be running as a Republican. Right, I mean, that's incredible because it's like, you, I mean, you're Chuck Schumer, like you could really tap anyone. You know, you could talk to a lot of people, you could find out more locally what's going on in Colorado politics, you know, and instead you're going with Hickenlooper, didn't even want the job. But you have obviously another opponent, we saw a few images of him earlier, former House Speaker Andrew Romanov. And he is for a Green New Deal, as you are yourself. He's also for Medicare for All, as you are yourself. He is against fracking, I believe, um, at least on paper, as you are yourself, of course. So you've also called him, though, like not a real progressive. Um, Tell me why. No, he's not a real progressive. I mean, when you look at his history as Speaker of the House, he is responsible for ushering and, and galvanizing the entire Democratic caucus at the time for passing the country's harshest anti-immigrant policies in 2006. That was him. And then beyond that, when he tried to, when he ran for Congress, he ran on a balanced budget amendment. I mean, this man, what he does is he looks around and sees what is this opportunity to give me? And I'm going to try and run on that, Mm. whether he believes it or not. You know, he's been asked, do you support, there was a ballot initiative in the past that was 112, which was uh, uh, making sure that that when there was fracking, it was 2,500 feet away from any residential areas or schools. Mm-hmm. He didn't initially support it. He hasn't supported it, but he's telling people that he does support it. You know, so it's also disingenuine. Right. Um, so it's you almost know, like he's frankly, trying to take the progressive lane because he sees it's open. Um, but then there you are. So hey. <laughs> tell so Lorena Garcia, tell me why, why are you running? Um, why why do you stand out from these two candidates? Well, for starters, one, I'm not a politician. I mean, when we look at the federal government, we have, and the way that I define a politician is somebody who wants to create, who make a career out of politics. Right. When you want to make a career out of politics, your goal is to save your butt. It's not to work for the people. And so when you have career politicians that are running for the federal government, that's why we have the situations that we have today. We don't have people who are brave enough to stand against the NRA. We don't have people who are brave enough to stand against the oil and gas industry. I mean, Andrew Romanoff himself already accepted two max donations from oil and gas executives, even though he signed the no fossil fuel pledge. Mm -hmm. And instead of returning them, he decides to donate them to the Sierra Club. Huh. I mean, that to me, that that again, that's another proof that he's not willing to actually stand up to the oil and gas industry. Um, You know, the other thing that I stand out on is that my entire career has been in social justice organizations. I've been fighting for equity my entire career, and even since I was four years or fourth grade. Yeah, tell us more about that. I know that your nonprofit work has really informed your politics and your candidacy. Yes, it has. You know, from organizing immigrant communities and understanding the the education system in the United States to fighting for women's rights in the workplace, economic justice, making sure that we have reproductive justice, not just reproductive rights, fighting for the rights of people who are incarcerated and who are in labor and 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 giving birth, fighting to make sure that people who experience wage wage inequity have the tools necessary to combat it. Um, making sure that young people have access to comprehensive sexual health education that's culturally competent. And I mean, I even worked um, at an organization for two years in NAMLO International that was working in Nepal and Nicaragua because, I mean, the work that the stuff that we have done as a country in specifically in Central and South America is, is 
abhorrent Mm -hmm. and, you know, we need to change it. We need to fix it. And so all of this work that I've done in my career has, I believe, sets me apart as being able to be the the most well-rounded candidate in this race. And that includes um, like actual pieces of legislation that you've helped craft or, or advocated for. Can you just talk about, I know there was wage transparency, but a couple others that I thought were really fascinating. Yeah. So for example, when I was the um, state director of nine to five, I helped worked. I worked with then representative Andy Kerr to pass Colorado's first ever family leave bill, which, which was parental leave for school activities. Mm. I also, when I was the executive director of Color, the Colorado Organization for Latina Opportunity and Reproductive Rights, we banned the practice of shackling pregnant and laboring inmates here in Colorado. Um, we also took a bill that um, banned the banned abstinence-only education in Colorado. Yeah. Um, you know, we. I was also responsible for create for for pushing forward a, a policy that allowed um, people who work in employ in places of employment of fifty or more to be able to actually talk about their pay, so they could actually fight pay inequity. I mean, if yeah. you don't know how much everyone's getting paid, how in the world can you fight it? No, that's no. And we never talk about that. We're Americans. We don't talk about how much we make or what. Yeah. Um, And so, okay, so right now you have to get signatures, right? You've got to get 10,500 signatures um, to actually get your name on this ballot, um, as does Hickenlooper, as does Romanoff, and um, 1,500 from each of the state's seven congressional districts in two months. So tell us about your plan. What are you you doing? Um, Who's working with you? Well, I am... I am beyond surprised and shocked at the amount of support that our campaign has received. We have over 150 volunteer circulators that are hitting the pavement every day collecting signatures for us. We had a Bernie Sanders event here last weekend. We had 35 circulators that were saturating that event. I mean, by the time that people got to me and I was like, will you sign my petition? They're like, oh, I already signed it. And you know, it was, it's just the the amount of support that, that we're seeing in this campaign is just beyond my wildest dreams. And I know that we're going to get it done. And I also, you know, there's, you, we mentioned two candidates, they're two white men, but the reality is that there's, there's four other women in this race as well. Mm-hmm. They're all going their own routes to access ballot, to, to get on the ballot. But the reality is because of the experience that I have, the, the field infrastructure that we've created, you know, there's a chance that I could actually be the only woman on this ballot. Wow. Well, and and not only that, but a progressive and a Latina woman, that's that's huge. So thank you so much, Lorena yeah. Garcia. Thank you. Um, best of luck. And how can we find out more about your campaign? Thank you. Thank you, Francesca. So you can go to um, lorenaforsenate.com. Okay. And yeah, hey, look, you guys are so. Hey, prepared. there's a graphic and everything. Awesome. Yeah. Yep. You can go there. You can um, volunteer, donate, and also please consider donating because we are a 100% people-powered campaign. <clears throat> Excuse me. The majority of our donations are from people who donate $250 or less. Wow. I mean, it's it's such a people-powered movement. <clears throat> Excuse me. Awesome. Yeah. No, that's the sign to wrap up. Um, Lorena <laughs> Garcia, thank you so much, and best of luck. Thank you so much. All right, take care. And that is our first of two conversations. I will see you right after the break. Welcome back to The Conversation. I am Francesca Fiorentini, what's going on? Thanks for staying here, being here, 
tuning back in. Uh, I'm really excited about our ne next guest. Uh, this is a very long conversation. I have a feeling that we're gonna have her back on because it's a huge topic. Um, her name is Jennifer Cohn. She is a writer and an election integrity advocate. And she just wrote this very long, incredible piece called How New Voting Machines Could Hack Our Democracy. Jennifer, welcome to the conversation. Hi, thank you for having me on the show. Thank you for being here. And thanks for writing this uh, really in-depth piece, which was fascinating and terrifying. Um, just, I wanted you to take us through it a little bit. Um, specifically, talk about this new, New voting machines that are being implemented in 250 uh, jurisdictions across the country um, called ballot marking devices is sort of where you focus. Yes, so there is a new type of voting machine that has been selling really like wildfire throughout the United States and it's called a universal use ballot marking device. And what it is, is it's a touch screen voting machine. So it looks like a touch screen. Um, but it's, its primary and really only function is to be a hackable electronic ballpoint pen. <laughs> and the problem with that is that unlike um, a real ballpoint pen, of course, a touchscreen voting machine can be hacked and it can malfunction electronically. Um, you know, most commonly with touchscreens, we see vote flipping due to miscalibration or operator error or really the cause is never known to the general public. But that is sort of the concern when you put this machine between voters and their paper ballots. And there are additional concerns with these machines as well, but it's just adding an unnecessary layer of electronics that can really go wrong on election day. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that happens whenever I read these kinds of stories is, what is the oversight into our voting systems, you know, and why? And why and how and who and all of those questions, you know, how are these being implemented, right? So, like, what does that process look like? How does a jurisdiction decide, hey, we just need all these, you know, new ballot marking devices, even though they're very hackable? Well, it's really hard. I, I can't read their minds, but many of these election officials have longstanding relationships now with voting machine vendors, who, of course, have a primary profit motive more than a security motive. And so they're really the people that they hear from the most about the machines, not so much the truly independent election security experts. And as I wrote in my article, there's also a very alarming um, pattern of conduct that strongly suggests corruption may be influencing some of these decisions, by which I mean things like the vendors making donations to the decision makers in Philadelphia who then chose this very um, controversial type of universal use ballot marking device called the Express Vote XL that um, experts and election integrity advocates were making absolutely a lot of noise about this and submitting lots of opposition and they went ahead and got it anyway. It was only after the fact that um, someone, someone in Pennsylvania figured out that, that the lobbyist for the vendor, ESNS, had made donations to the decision makers and that actually gave the um, city of Philadelphia an opportunity to back out of the contract, but they decided to keep the contract and they did find the, find the vendor $2.9 million, but it, it wasn't a good look. Wow, no, not a good look for 
democracy generally. Um, what happened exactly that they were fined because were the machines malfunctioned or? No, they, they're just must, there was a law that they had to disclose if um, the vendor or its lobbyists had made any donations to the decision makers, and and they didn't disclose that. So, yeah, that, so it, so in Philadelphia, um, I believe that there were they've only been used in one election. Um, another county actually followed Philadelphia's lead, Northampton County. And they did use those in um, toward the end of 2019, and it was one of the more um, spectacular, spectacularly catastrophic fails for a new voting system ever. The machines had to be cracked open, and so that they could be um, what these BMDs are. So they are ballot marking machines with an integrated scanner instead of a separate scanner to do the actual counting. Okay. And that makes that sort of ups the complexity a whole extra level and anytime you up the complexity there's more of a chance of malfunctions and that's apparently what happened so there was a democratic candidate for I believe he was running for a judge and he was shown as only having something like 15 votes in this um in this one area and it turned out he really had 1000 and he ultimately proceeded to win the election and in fact I think the Republicans after that so originally the Democrats were really worried. Afterwards, it was the Republicans who were really worried. Um, there was not an election challenge ultimately filed. But th the thing is, there were additional problems as well that are unique to BMDs and unique to the touch screens, which is you often hear of miscalibration and that's what leads to boat flipping. And sure enough, that's what was happening in Northampton. There were voters complaining of that and hypersensitive touch screens um, and hypo, I don't think they had hypo, but that's another possibility with touchscreen systems. But the hyper can make you select someone you didn't mean to. Right. I mean, all of this, it reminds me of the Iowa caucuses and using an app to verify right. a vote that was, you know, going perfectly fine for decades um, and adding more layers in a way to make certain vendors money, right? And that's sort of the ultimate goal. And as you pointed out, those conflicts of interest and that corruption is, I mean, it's it's mind boggling that this is allowed to happen. But I wanna know what is, um, what are they selling people on, right? Like what, what are these ballot marking devices doing? What Like what is their case to be made for why um, jurisdictions should get them? It was kind of sly. So what happened is for years, independent election, um, election security experts have been calling for paper ballots. And the idea is to have a software independent record of voter intent, a hand-marked hand -marked paper ballot that you could compare against the electronic total to see if there was hacking. And so I really think that the vendors had a profit motive that they, they call these um, ballot marking devices that create a machine-marked printout instead. So it's not actually software independent. They call them paper ballot systems and they managed to get a lot of headway on that. And mm. I've spent a good part of over two years trying to get people to not just say paper ballots, but to add that hand-marked prefix. And it's been a real uphill battle. So they sell them as being more secure because they've got, um, they do have paper. Just because they the print? They, they print, a it's a hackable machine that prints the paper. <laughs> and the thing is that studies have long shown that the majority of voters don't notice if a voting machine has flipped their votes, whether on a piece of paper or on the touch screen itself. And in fact, a very recent study showed that 93% of errors were missed by voters in the study on these machine marked um, so-called paper ballots. Right. But they're selling them as being as being more secure. And I think that um, some of these counties are it, that already had touch screens are 
maybe are more comfortable with using what they already had. So that might be another selling point. The the one thing that when you really get into it with a ballot marking device proponent, they often will say, well, with hand-marked paper ballots, you know, voters are sloppy and they're gonna make mistakes. Mm. But of course, the same thing is true if you're using a touch screen, there's going to be a certain number of voters who mistakenly push the wrong button. And the data, as far as if, if you get scientific at it about it, if the data doesn't really back up the notion that there is a significant enough problem with mismarks on hand-marked ballots right. to warrant the additional risks of a ballot marking device. I mean, I can only, you know, it's just, scary to me that I have to give my mother tech support on a regular basis on like an iPad. Now imagining her trying to vote on something that's an iPad, exactly. it's like, okay, slow down. Um, I exactly. wanna- and A lot of the poll workers are older people as well who maybe are not as comfortable with technology. So inevitably when things go wrong as they will, yeah. um, a lot of them aren't gonna be comfortable handling trying to fix it. Sure, and so, um, how, because you sort of talked about this, but how are these ballot marking systems more susceptible to hacking? Well, what they do, so what about 75 to 80%, about 75% of the country does is they use um, hand-marked paper ballots and a scanner. And then you, so you really have only, you still have to deal with the scanner, right. but at least you have a truly software independent record of voter intent that you can go back to later to compare against the total that comes out of the scanner. What these do is they still have the scanner either as a separate component or as an integrated component, but they still have that separate scanning computer. They add on an extra layer instead of the ballpoint pen, they're adding on this extra layer of another hackable touchscreen. And what people sometimes I think don't realize when you talk about hacking of voting machines is that they are, um, it's not so much that they may think, well, maybe one or two would be hacked, but that's that's a, a risk worth taking, I guess. They they re, in reality, um, all voting machines, whether you're talking about ballot marking devices or earlier touch screens or scanners, they receive their programming before each election from centralized county or state computers, and so. If you have hacking at the at the at that sort of centralized location, it can impact a vast number of um, really all of the voting machines in the county or the state, depending on how it's set up. Right. So, um, so yeah, you can have problems happening on sort of a a mass scale. Right, because they're at that added layer of software is exactly. hackable. But the scanner, sort of the number, you know, I've whenever I voted, it's been sort of number two pencil, put it through a scanner, done. That you're saying right. is not as hackable, or isn't, because there is no real software. It's just sort of internal to that machine. No, right. unfortunately, all voting equipment is is incredibly insecure, and that includes the scanners. But you want to scale it down to the extent possible. So there are certainly are some election integrity advocates that advocate um, hand counting in addition to the hand marked paper ballots, actually hand counting at the polling place on election night, which I think would be the ideal solution. But we do have, at least in many places, including my state of California, there, some of the ballots are extremely long. Right. And it's been, it, it's, it's hard enough to keep um, election officials from really doubling up on their election equipment with these new um, touchscreen ballot marking devices. To get them to get rid of the scanners too, um, it's, it's not gonna happen. And it really would require in many places counting through the night and sure. and beyond. And we need to, uh, to know the results done. now. So the What's that? We need to know the results immediately, right? 
even yeah, if it's just 62 percent like counting. a little bit of a myth. Um, maybe the media sure. wants to know the results immediately. <laughs> I don't think there are really any voters who say you need to know the results immediately. But I do want to say that hand marking um, doesn't delay the results at all. Um, oh, scanning versus hand counting, I suppose, would would maybe delay the results. Right. But um, so the idea is you want the least amount of equipment possible, and whether that's just scanners or even getting rid of the scanners, you don't need these these ballot marking machines for universal use. They are they have been around for years for voters with disabilities, and they should remain available for that limited purpose. But because of due to security concerns, it's just really irresponsible, I think, to have deployed them to have had so many jurisdictions really, and this is just in the past several years that they've right. taken off. Right. Um, we've had so many jurisdictions and oftentimes it's the most populous counties that have purchased these systems and they're going to be using them really for the first or just the second time um, in, the, in the primaries and in the general election. Wonderfully unsettling stuff. Jennifer Cohen, thank you for writing this article, um, yes. How New Voting Machines Could Hack Our Democracy. Um, where can we find that article again? Um, that is through the New York Review of Books. So okay. you can just Google the New York Review of Books and my name, Jennifer Cohn, C-O-H-N, and you should be able to find it. Wonderful. Thank you for doing my job for me. Jennifer, um, sure. hope to see you again on this show. Thank you. I'd like that very much. Yeah. All right. Take care. Oh, suddenly a coin toss doesn't sound so bad, huh? Let's just go back to coin tossing. Oh. Anyway. Thank you so much for being here, for watching the conversation on TYT. I'm Francesca Fiorentini. Follow me. Goodbye.